I will give you the best answer I know. It might change in two years. Keep your seatbelt fastened. Welcome back, Intimates. Thanks for your support on Patreon, making this 2021 season possible. This podcast is about all things intimate, relationships, love, connection, community, consensual non-monogamy, kink, orgies, lovers, and of course, good old-fashioned sex. I talk with old friends and even meet some new ones. I interview people from all walks of life, from recovered addicts to counselors, sex partners to perfect strangers. I'd like to thank my hosts, the Musqueam First Nation, as this podcast is recorded on their unceded ancestral territory, where I was born, where I work, and where I currently live and play. So settle in for an intimate conversation. If we know what consent is and how to do it, why is it so hard for so many of us? Does what I think consent is match what you think consent is? And if not, why not? How does this impact how we negotiate our agreements and how can we get a little bit better every day? Marriage and family counselor Sar Sermic joins us today to chat about how his time leading the Consent Academy and now teaching for them impacts those questions. Let's see what answers Sar has for us here on Intimate Interactions. Welcome to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with Sar Sermic from the Consent Academy, current teacher, previous director of the Consent Academy, and of course, marriage and family therapist. Sar uses he, him, and she, her pronouns, and is someone I'm happy to call a friend. Welcome, Sar. Welcome. Good to talk again. Yeah. Um, so today we're going to be talking about why consent is hard. So what would you say are the top three challenges for why consent is hard? Good luck doing it in three. (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll try to narrow, I'll I'll put it in categories. Sure. So um, one of the reasons consent is hard is that it's way more complicated than most people want to give it credit for. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Uh, Number two is that it's very personal. It sort of gets to the heart of our vulnerability and our identity and the way we think. And the third reason is that we live in a culture that in many ways glorifies non-consensual interaction. So those are my three categories. Where would you like to start? (laughs) Let's start with cultural glorification. I like that one. Okay. So how would you say our culture glorifies non-consent? Well, I think in many ways it starts by denying agency to folks. Uh, You know, if you look at throughout our history as a society, as a culture, You can go back as far in that as you really want to. Mm -hmm. But even the the renunciation of chattel slavery has, in our country, like by law, has only been in existence for, what, like 140 years? Mm -hmm. The reality, though, is that it's only been in the last hundred years, even 80, where chattel slavery wasn't an issue, where people couldn't own other people as property. Right. Um, 
which and... is which is to say nothing about like the 13th amendment and like the prison industrial complex and like all the sort of right. things that well, follow from chattel slavery exactly and and so that place <laughs> where as a as a culture and society we are a couple millimeters beyond it's okay for one person to own another person and dictate the entire course of their life The concept of autonomy, where everybody has the right, the inherent right, to say what happens to their body, mind, and spirit, is relatively new in our culture. Mm -hmm. And there are many people who are still indoctrinated or acculturated into this idea that certain people are less than others. Mm -hmm. right? So that hierarchical system that's built into our culture, that some people are better than others. Mm -hmm. Now, why a given person thinks they are better than somebody else wholly depends on who they are, where they're at, and their, their place within the larger society. Right. Like, is it poverty that makes someone supposedly less than someone else? Or is it race or is it whichever gender, sex, right. et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. And it, we are still, even the basic, like you look at women's suffrage, you know, the, the ability for women to have the right to vote. Mm -hmm. You know, about a hundred years or so. And in, in terms of generations, right, a hundred years is only four generations. <laughs> yeah. You know, my great, great grandmother didn't have the right to vote. Right. And, and while we like to think of ourselves as progressive, that's not a lot of time in terms of cultural psychology as a, as a change. Mm -hmm. And even with that, like you look at, you know, women still make less than men on average for the same amount of work. Right? Yeah. They're Espe still especially mothers. Sorry. Yeah. Especially mothers. That. Yeah. And, and they're expected to do more. Mm -hmm. Like they, they have more responsibility in terms of responsibility for the home and responsibility at work. Um, yeah, we just, we're in infinitesimal steps from a, a history perspective. Mm -hmm. And all of that comes back to consent. Right. Right. All of that comes back to whether or not a given person in our world or in our own lives has the right to say no to something that we want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Even in terms of dates, I just quickly was sort of looking up, um, you know, women's suffrage, if you include black women as women, which if, as of course we should, didn't we should. have the right to vote until the mid sixties. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking like 55 years, a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Very recent to the culture for sure. 
Yeah, so that that's a really good framing for why consent is so hard to talk about in a cultural context because culturally we haven't we hadn't really even decided the issue to a majority belief until less till just about half a century a little more than half a century ago. Yeah. And we've been you know we see the impact of all that all the time. Um and the fact that you know, we still haven't encoded so much of consent into law, mm-hmm. right, is sort of the, one of the glaring <laughs> pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and with legislation being so punitive in most cases and so yeah. focused on you know, attempting to deter things and then not course correcting when they weren't deterred. <laughs> yeah. And unequally, mm-hmm. you know, for folks of color and folks of poverty and all those other things, the very nature that our laws are still applied unequally. Mm-hmm. Right. Is an issue of consent. Like we're supposed to be the ruled by the consent of the governed. Mm-hmm. in our democratic world and certainly there are other countries that are haven't even gotten to that point right some of them are still republics yeah <laughs> sorry i had to you had to that's fine <laughs> um you know, but that place of like how we as a as a society treat people mm-hmm and the fact that we are so quick to take away people's right to consent to things. Yeah. Um, and then to go back to the, the, the question of like, what do you mean by glorify? Like the, the classic example, right. uh, and this will prove that I am a, a sci-fi geek, uh, Amazing. is the Han Solo Princess Leia scene in The Empire Strikes Back, where she says no, he pushes it and she kisses him. Mm-hmm. Um, Carrie yeah. Fisher actually had some very interesting things to say in the later latter part of her life. Yeah, she was super cool in the latter part of her life. Not that she wasn't always, but yeah. Um, but about that and and the regrets around and and the stress around it, mm-hmm. the impact that it had on her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but just that idea, and it still shows up. You look at any romantic comedy. Sure. Like, woman says no, guy pushes it, she says no again, he pushes harder, and she says, ah, you must love me. Ugh, yeah. And like, that is not, that is not consent practice, that is glorifying coercion. Yes. Right. We should yes. really stop that. Yeah. Yeah, we really should. And we should stop framing um, people who have a desperate need or an inability to take no for an answer as just, you know, doggedly determined, because that's not always helpful. It's not always healthy or good for people. No. And it's not, you know, from a psychology perspective, it's actually not healthy for the person who's being dogged. Right. Right. That level of self interest that level of 
need to prove oneself, whatever it is that's driving that person on an emotional level mm -hmm. um, is often much more about neurosis than mm -hmm. it is about love and affection. Certainly more about them than about the object of their affections. Yes. So the yeah. whole notion that, you know, they must love me because is sort of like, well, they're clearly dealing with their own stuff right now. And right. <laughs> it's less, less about you. This grand romantic gesture is less about you and more about them. Right. Yeah. Um, also, um, in, in fairness to the American Republic, I should mention we're a constitutional monarchy. So I'm throwing stones from a glass house here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and your monarch doesn't even live in your country. I know. I know. It's brutal. The best part was, as the, uh, as the younger sibling to the, uh, to the colonial dyad that we sort of make up since, uh, you know, the older siblings stormed out of the house, as it were, uh -huh. um, we just got to be like, you know what, we're just gonna, we're gonna leave, but not leave. And the monarch was sort of like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. We just, let's, let's not fight about it. We we're right. like, great. No, no, nobody needs another colonial war. You just, <laughs> exactly. just agree to pay us taxes and you'll be fine. Well, even better. I don't even do we pay. I don't even think we pay England any taxes. I mean, you know what we do, though? We do spend money when royalty comes to visit. We, we do all expenses paid when royalty comes to visit, which I'm still just like, this is a weird arrangement. And in exchange, we get to be part of the extended Commonwealth family. So we get to join the Commonwealth Games and do crap like that. It's right. really really weird we have a, the weirdest <laughs> current colonial post-colonial it's confusing to say the least I, I always remind people that that geopolitics is an evolutionary process mm -hmm. not a planned one <laughs> very true yes a lot of organic holdovers and yes. the same true for consent culture so tell me more about consent as a as an how it impacts identity, worldview, and sort of what makes it such a deeply personal thing. I mean, the, the piece that most people can identify with is going to someone else and asking just for about anything, but let's say asking for help. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, can you, I mean, even if something as simple as, can you hold me? I'm really sad. Mm -hmm. and actually asking it not let me throw my arms around you and then mumble into your shoulder will you hold me i'm really sad but saying you know i'm i'm feeling emotional i'm having a hard day can i get a hug can you hold me and the vulnerability that that other person has the right to say no that they have the right to deny what you need in that moment is it goes to the heart of who we are and who we believe ourselves to be. Right? And so when it gets into identity and bias, it gets into this place of, am I worthy? Mm -hmm. right? Do I have the right to ask? And on the other side, do I have the right to say no? Like, do I have the right to hold my own boundaries? 
What was I taught about that? What did I grow up experiencing? Mm -hmm. What is my base concept of the world when it comes to interpersonal interaction and consensual behavior? And so that deep, vulnerable place of, I'm going to let you say no and have to manage whatever's going on with me myself is one that is, it's uncomfortable, but I think it's uncomfortable because it's an expression of our vulnerability. It's an expression of, I am putting myself out there and I'm afraid that you will reject me. Mm -hmm. Now, the reality is, is that the other person isn't rejecting. They're just holding their own needs. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't feel that way. But that kind of cuts, cuts to the whole idea of um, mistaken beliefs and like cognitive behavioral therapy and like that whole camp of, you know, why doesn't it feel that way? And like, what are the stories we're telling ourselves about that interaction? Exactly. And the whole internal narrative around it, um, which often comes back to shame, mm -hmm. right? It comes back to, you know, self-esteem. Um, sure. And then it comes, and then from there, right, it leads into whatever are the def defensive mechanisms that we have around those things. Mm -hmm. Um and so, like, I've interviewed and worked with probably hundreds of people at this point who have violated someone else's consent. And some of those have been in very small ways, and some of those have been in life-devastating ways. Mm -hmm. Not always, but often... At the heart of it was, I was afraid they would say no. Mm -hmm. I was scared. And then acted in a highly maladaptive way to that fear. Right. Right. It's not in any way to excuse their level of responsibility because they sure. totally have responsibility. 100%. For their behavior. Um, but I think we... We don't understand, like we want to make it simple and it just isn't simple. Like these things go to the core and heart of who we are and who we believe ourselves to be because the reverse is true as well. You know, I've talked to hundreds of people who had their consent violated and said, I just couldn't say no. I couldn't stop it. Mm-hmm. And like that work is around understanding that, yeah, they have every right to say no. But that's not what they were taught growing up. That's not what they learned from previous partners. That's not part of the cycle that they're in. Mm -hmm. And so it's about changing the entire identity to just understand you have autonomy. You have the right to say no. And I, I wish... You know, make me dictator of the world. <laughs> like, this is a thing everybody would learn in kindergarten. 
Mm-hmm. Right? I've, I've often said if people just learned about consent through a BDSM lens at a young age, it would do so much more good than harm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's one of my, actually one of my future projects is uh, I've been working on a developmental model of consent. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. Which is That's still, very exciting. Still very in the early stages. Uh, but uh, it's one of my future projects is to, essentially publish a at every age here's how to talk about consent here's how to here's exercises and games and stuff to play with Mm -hmm. kids to teach them about it you know all the way up through okay you're in your 80s and you don't have the same level of agency you did right when you were younger here's how to manage that right and like how can we hold space to encourage um, self-responsibility and feelings of autonomy and agency where that is being limited and there's a reality there, but then there's also little things that you can give to a person to really encourage them to still hold on to some of that feeling and sort of have that emotional health. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm currently dealing with uh, an aging parent myself who I'm, very cautiously approaching well i know you need these accessibility things and i'm getting these accessibility things and there's anxiety at play on Mm -hmm. her part some of the time and it's like okay so i won't get it if you don't want me to get it and also here are the things that here are the options that you have would you like me to purchase this for you bring it over and install it right and sort of playing that line because there have been moments in the past, of course, where I've, you know, just done something and she's been like, well, I'm really happy with how this ended up. <laughs> and I'm like, this isn't in line with my values. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm happy with how it ended up, but I didn't like how I got here. <laughs> well, and then there's the whole issue of anxiety in a family member where that anxiety is so debilitating that any yeah. form of change is incredibly difficult. And you know, like I don't get to make that decision. And also um, there have been moments in the past where I, I have sort of made minor decisions like that and then been like, oh, this really doesn't sit well with my values. Like I, you know, I'm really not an ends justify the means kind of person. And so there right. have been, I'm, I'm currently exploring that. Like how do I preserve agency and autonomy and make, make offers, you know, yeah. for more of a consensual interaction? And I think sometimes to go back to the previous point, how mm-hmm. do you do that in a culture where mm-hmm. that is not supported by external systems and structures? Right. Right. So it's like, okay, I have to build my own scaffolding within this non-consensual scaffold. Mm-hmm. And there really is an intense non-consensual scaffold as well. There's a lot of South Asian cultural elements that are coming into play about, you know, um, you know, a son, quote unquote, even though I don't identify necessarily as a man or a boy, but as a child taking taking care of, um, you know, a parent, especially a mother, like there's there's a cultural precedent there about, you know, just making sure that she has everything she needs. And there's less of a cultural precedent about asking her about it. Right. right. So that's an interesting journey navigating. Uh, so our third point before we run out of time was that yeah. consent is complex. Yes. And so 
not to spend eight hours explaining that, which we totally could. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think the piece that I would really want people to think about and remember is it's not just about saying yes or saying no. Mm -hmm. right? Oftentimes, I think people want to distill consent down into this moment in time where someone either said no or they didn't say no. <laughs> Go on. Like someone set a boundary or there was yeah. an absence of a boundary set. Mm -hmm. And that's consent. Right. That's the no right. means no kind of philosophy of consent. Yeah. And that distillation, I can understand the appeal in that it's simple and it actually removes a lot of responsibility usually from the person who has the higher level of agency or privilege. Yes. That's very concisely in, put. Yeah. I think in reality, we have to understand that consent is made up of literally thousands of small pieces. And so not only is it a little bit more difficult to get an authentic yes or an authentic no. Mm -hmm. But it also shows up in a lot more places than just around sex. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to in like school systems or corporations that are like, well, we don't need to talk about consent here because sex doesn't happen here. Right. Like, okay. You're right. Sex shouldn't be happening here. That doesn't mean it doesn't. <laughs> point one. And point two, what about all the other places consent shows up? And they're like, well, what do you mean? Right. Uh, my favorite in the corporate world is, have you ever gone to somebody's desk and asked, hey, do you have a minute? Mm -hmm. And then launch straight into the thing you want to ask about. Yeah. Like, in that moment, you asked for consent and then violated it immediately. Like without waiting for any answer. Without waiting for it, because you didn't wait for an answer. Right. It's the polite way to say, I would like your attention right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to pretend you're giving them an option. Um, you know, or if, if you're in, in a management position, mm -hmm. asking an employee, hey, can you stay late? Right. And work on this or finish this project. And... Even if you, the thing that I always try to impress on people, and this is like the big part of complexity it will mention, is that when you're the person with more power, when you're the person with a higher level of agency in a situation, you may not be able to get consent from the other person because of the level of power differential that exists. Mm -hmm. Because they will feel they have to in order to keep you happy or protect their job or, you know, survive in the world. Right. Uh, and so like even, even that complexity, which does not even get into capacity levels and levels of information, uh, communication skills and all the other complexities that go around consent. Mm -hmm. Um, but just the complexity of power mm -hmm. and power differential 
so impacts our ability to say yes or no mm-hmm. that it's it's tough and you can ask just about anybody like have you ever said yes to something you didn't want to do yeah everyone's got a story and everybody's got that story and then why like mm-hmm. you you don't just ask the question right you follow it up with well why did you say yes well because i was afraid i would be hurt or fired or shamed or like I was afraid of a consequence. Mm-hmm. Right. And then my response to that is almost always, then the other person wasn't asking, they were demanding. Right. Right. You didn't say yes to a question. You didn't say, you didn't consent to something. You capitulated to a demand. Right. That's not consent. Therefore, any yes you gave was invalid. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of those situations where if a person can't say no, their yes doesn't mean a lot. So even if for those people that may have been listening going, oh, I really don't like no means no consent. I much prefer yes means yes. That's all well and good. But these complexities all still apply to a yes means yes framework. Yeah. And you know, what, what, at the Academy we use, um, we want authentic and explicit consent. Mm-hmm. Like enthusi- even enthusiastic consent is great, but you and I both know people who can be highly enthusiastic about something they don't want at all. Absolutely. And people who can be not enthusiastic about things they very much do want. Yeah. Yeah. So we hold the standard as authentic and explicit consent. Mm-hmm. I absolutely do want this. Or even and- I absolutely choose to do it, right. whether I want it or not. Right. And this is specifically what I am choosing to do. Mm-hmm. That's the eight-hour complexities of consent in five minutes. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for being on another session of Intimate Interactions, Sar. I love these conversations. They're great. So how did you like it, Intimates? Discuss your ideas with the community at facebook.com forward slash Intimate Victor, or tweet me at Intimate Victor, or follow my Instagram, you guessed it, at Intimate Victor. If you can spare the cost of coffee to help the show keep going, head to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. We hugely appreciate your help to continue making intimate conversations for you and yours. If not, you can always help other intimacy nerds find the podcast by leaving us a review anywhere online, especially iTunes. Or you can just tell a friend. The opening music is on hold for you, made of algorithmically generated notes and chords, and played by an AI-rendered saxophonist. The closing music is Gymnopédie, number one, by Eric Satie, Both are provided royalty-free, courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Thanks so much for your time, and may your most important relationships be filled with the intimate, rich interactions you crave. Be well.